Man, that's good news, isn't it? Though my love is often cold. Philippians 1.6 says, He who began a good work in us will complete it. It's a promise. He'll complete it. To the day of Christ Jesus. He will hold us fast. <clears throat> Go ahead and turn in your Bible to Matthew chapter 16. So we've been going through the gospel of Matthew together, and we took a little break, and now we're about to jump back into Matthew at chapter 16, and we're going to be at verse 13 through 20. And we're about to read this passage and then pray and dig into it together. Before we do that, can everyone hear me clearly, especially in the back? Can you hear me? Connor, you can hear me back there, brother? Okay. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 16, look at verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples... Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not pre prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. <clears throat> then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this passage of Scripture. Thank you, God, for your word. We believe that your word is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, Lord. We believe that your word is like a fire and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces. God, we believe these are your words. So please help us, Lord, to hear as those that are true worshipers of Christ. Help us to hear in submission, Lord, to your word as those that long to obey you. That are just looking for a commandment to obey. Make us doers of your word and not hearers only, please. And I pray, God, that your church would be built up and helped this morning. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, you've heard me say this before, but this passage, <clears throat> Matthew 16, verse 13 through 20, we just read, is like the mountain peak of Matthew's gospel. Um, it's kind of like the, the climax of the gospel. You kind of hit this peak and then everything's going to change after this in Matthew's gospel. And you can see that by 
If you, if you just notice what came before in Matthew's gospel, you've got all this confusion about who Jesus is, right? You some people saying he's demon-possessed, and some people saying he's John the Baptist risen from the dead, and, and on it goes. Some people saying he's a prophet, some people saying, you know, you, you can go to, and you got all this confusion leading up, and then right here at this mountain peak of Matthew's gospel, you've got this clear Christian confession, sort of this first Christian confession. You are the Christ the son of the living God. This is, this is a mountain peak of the gospel. And you notice that everything changes after this. In fact, you can just glance forward at verse 21. Look at verse 21. He says, From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things. So from this moment, this mountain peak moment that we just read and we're about to meditate on, everything shifts from that time, man. It's Jesus heading to the cross after this. So this is a huge moment in Matthew's gospel. If you read some of the different uh, commentaries on this passage of scripture, they say things like this. This is the central turning point in Matthew's narrative. Or another one says, this is the climax of his gospel. Another one says, the entire narrative thus far has prepared us for this climactic moment. Another commentator calls this the center of the story or the turning point of the ministry of Jesus. So I'm not alone in that. Come see it with me. This is a huge moment right here that we just read and we're about to meditate on together. Now, with that in mind, if you really notice the high place of this passage as sort of the center of the gospel, whatever's contained here, it just sort of heightens the importance of it, doesn't it? Whatever you see here, what, what, is, what is God going to put right at the mountain peak of this gospel? And whatever's here, it's huge. It's massive. And I would, I would submit to you that there's two major things here. And it's Christology and ecclesiology. Now, this is, cr- this is crazy, amazing stuff, right? Because that's... Really, really a, a massive weakness in sort of uh, modern day, what's called Christianity in our day. Just massive weakness to have a sound Christology and a sound ecclesiology. And yet that's what's right here jammed into the center of the story. Now, to, you know, big words, let me tell you what I mean. Christology, it's the study of Christ, who he is, what he's done, his person, his work. It starts off the first half of this passage, verse 13 through 16. Who do men say that I am? Who do you say that I am? You're the Christ, the son of the living God. That's beautiful Christology. Who is Christ? And then that second word, ecclesiology, you hear the word, the Greek word ekklesia. It's the word translated church in Matthew 16 and Matthew 18 and other places. So ecclesiology is the study of the church, your understanding of the church. And so Jesus, Jesus responds to this Christian confession in the first half of the passage, verse 13 through 16, with the second half of the passage, verse 17 through 20. And he's talking about, I'm going to build my church. I'm going to build my ecclesia. This is about the church of Jesus Christ. These two things are massive. And I hope that will make you, um, just as we dig into this passage, I hope that will make you very, very aware of how massive these two things are. Your Christology and your, and your ecclesiology. Your, your knowledge of Christ. Do you know him? Who do you say that he is? 
and your knowledge and understanding of the church, and maybe even more so, your relationship with Christ and your relationship with the church. These, two, these things are massive, y'all. Massive. Right here at the center of Matthew's gospel. And so what I want us to do is we're going to take these two sections, so the first half of the passage of Christology, verse 13 through 16, second half of the passage, your ecclesiology, verse 17 through 20, and we're going to talk about those two things. So verse 13 through 16, we see Jesus ask two questions, and he gets two responses. He asks two questions, and he gets two responses. So the first question is in verse 13. Look at it. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples. So he's speaking to his disciples. And listen to the question he asked them. Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Who do people say that the Son of Man is? So he refers to himself as the Son of Man. That Daniel 7, Son of Man, going to be king forever. You can go back and read that. He says, who do people say that the Son of Man is? He want, he's drawing them into thinking about what, they, what, what are people thinking about Christ? And you know where this is going. What do you think about Christ, right? What are people saying? What's the popular opinion about who I am? Is the question in verse 13. Now their, their response is in verse 14. Look at it. And they said, some say John the Baptist and Others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Right? So, some people say this, some people say that. John the Baptist, or Elijah, or Jeremiah, one of the prophets. People are saying different things about, about who you are. And so what you, what you see here, some of this is wrapped up in superstition, right? Like you can go back to chapter 14, verse 1 and 2, and you see King Herod thought that Jesus was John the Baptist risen from the dead. Remember, he had beheaded John the Baptist, and Jesus is walking in such power. He thinks, man, that's got to be a man risen from this. So there's some superstition wrapped up in this. Some of it's wrapped up in understanding Old Testament prophecy, like, like um, you go back and read Malachi chapter 4, and this coming of Elijah. Man, this power, this man, Jesus, must be the coming of Elijah. So it's wrapped up in different things, but what you see here are wrong or incomplete views, insufficient views of who, Christ, who Christ is, who Jesus is. It's an insufficient Christology. So I, I really, I can't express this strong enough, how massively important it is for you to have a sound and right and glorious Christology, a sound and right and glorious understanding view of who Jesus is, who he is, and what he's done. Now I want you to think about these views that were just mentioned by the popular, you know, the popular opinion. Were these low views of Christ? Or were these high views of Christ? When you read through that. Some say John the Baptist. Some say Elijah. Some say Jeremiah, one of the prophets. Are these low views of Christ? Or are these high views of Christ? And relatively speaking, these are high views of Jesus, right? Again, I say not compared to who he actually is. But they're, they're not saying like some of the Pharisees, he's the demon-possessed one. Okay, These are relatively high views of Jesus, high views of who he is. But they're not sufficient views. They're not right views. They are somewhat exalted views of Jesus that lead people straight to hell. Now think about that for a minute. 
somewhat exalted views of Jesus that in the end, if you stay there, will lead you straight to hell. Now, that's very, very relevant in our culture today. Our culture has somewhat exalted views of Christ that lead many people to hell. Jesus is a great teacher. Jesus is a great example for us. Jesus was a really good prophet. He was a really great man. And all these high and, and, and relatively exalting views of Christ, and yet they die and they burn in hell forever. Because they had a wrong view of Christ, though they seemed to respect him in some sense, man, that's, re- that's so relevant for our culture, is it not? And yet that's what we see here. Our Christology must be sound. It must be sound because this has eternal ramifications. Now, let's go to the second question. Second question is in verse 15. And he said to them, so notice he's still talking to his disciples. He said to them, sometimes people make a mistake, think it's only him talking to Peter right here. Not true. He said to them, he's looking at his disciples. Look at the second question. But who do you say that I am? And that you there is plural. Who do y'all say that I am? He's looking at his disciples. Who do you, plural, who do you say that I am? And it's emphatic. Who do you? I know what the popular opinion is, but who do you say that I am? That's the question here. Their response is in verse 16. You see Peter speak up. He's speaking up as a spokesman for the rest of these disciples that Jesus is addressing. And Peter gives the first true Christian confession. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. First true Christian confession. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And y'all, this is a huge moment. It's a huge moment. And I want you to understand this. As soon, if, if you're just reading through it and just kind of thinking about imagining yourself being there, it's like he gives this confession. Who do you say that I am? You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And it's like time just stops for a minute. And, you're, and, and we'll get into Jesus' response in just a minute. But just think about it. It's like all of a sudden he says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And all of a sudden Peter looks up and Jesus is pouring out blessing on Peter. He's talking about some church he's going to build. He's talking about the kingdom coming and passing on kingdom authority. Like what happened here? It's like time stopped and there's this massive looking up to the future that happens on this confession. Huge moment. Christian confession, you are the Christ, you're the son of the living God. Now this confession is pregnant with meaning, it's just full of meaning. We could just sit here the rest of the time on that confession, right? You are the Christ, what does it mean? You're the Christ. When, when, you, when, when he says you're the Christ, Christ, ought to, uh, Christ or Messiah, it ought to bring back thoughts of all of your Old Testament from Genesis all the way to Malachi, thinking through this one that was promised to come. You go back to Genesis 49 and you, you remember it had been promised that there was coming one through Abraham's lineage, right? And he looks at Judah and on this blessing on Judah in Genesis 49, He says, the scepter will not depart from Judah. 
Do you understand that there's a king, a scepter? There's a king that's going to come from the lineage of Judah. And it says he'll be king forever because it'll never depart from there. It goes on to say to him, this king will be the obedience of the peoples, the obedience of the nations. You remember David in the Old Testament was promised that through his lineage was going to come a king that would be king from forever. You know, David was from that line of Judah. And through David is going to come a king that's going to reign as king forever to never be dethroned. Remember the prophets talked about this. The prophet Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 and 7, such a popular verse, right? Unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. He's going to be called Mighty God, Wonderful Counselor, Prince of Peace, Everlasting Father. So here's this child born, this son, that's going to be called Mighty God. Next verse says that he's going to sit on the throne of David. The government is going to be upon his shoulder. He's going to sit on David's throne. He's going to be a king. So think about that, Jesus. You, who do you say that I am? You're the Christ. You're the Christ. And I don't want you to miss this. Surely you heard it. There's a lot, lot more Messiah verses you can grab out of the Old Testament and speak about this one coming. But surely you heard the emphasis on king. When these people thought about a Christ coming, they thought about a king. Christ in king. Man, the king is coming. The Christ is coming. That's the way they thought about it. In fact, you can see that really clearly. You remember early on in Matthew. Matthew chapter 2. Remember when those wise men came from the east? Remember what they asked Herod? The wise men from the east, they said this to, to Herod. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Where's the one born king? So you know what Herod does? He grabs the people that know the Bible. He grabs the priests. He grabs the scribes. He says, hey, y'all answer this question. Where's the king going to be born? What he says, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. You see that? King and Christ. Christ and king. Next verse, next verse they said, they, they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea. For so it is written by the prophet. And they point to Micah 5 too. Again, Old Testament, Messiah verse. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. Why? For from you shall come a ruler. That's a king. Who will shepherd my people Israel. So Christ. Who do you say that I am? You are the Christ. You're the one promised. You're the head crusher of Satan. The all nations blesser. The king. From David, the one born mighty God, but on the, sits on the throne of David. The one born in Bethlehem, the ruler of nations. That's you are Christ, king. And then he says, the son of the living God. Y'all, he is not merely a man. He is a man. He's absolutely a man. But he's not merely a man. He is the son of of the living God. You know what comes to mind? Psalm 2. Do you remember Psalm 2? It's that psalm that starts off and says, Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? Why is there this upheaval over the nations and the, and the peoples and the rulers? And they're setting themselves against who? It says it in verse 
Verse 2, against the Lord and his anointed. That's two. Against the Lord and against his anointed. Now that verse is quoted in the New Testament as the Lord and his Christ. Christ means the anointed one. So against the Lord and against his anointed. Well, what are you going to do about this? And he says a little bit later, the Lord, the Father, says, As for me, I have sent my king on Zion, my holy hill. The Christ, the anointed, who is the king. I, tell, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. You're the Christ, the king, the son of of the living God. This is the son right here. This verse goes on to say, kiss the son. This is the way this psalm ends. They've set themselves against the Lord and against his Christ, the king, the son. And the way the psalm ends is, listen, here's what you better do. Here's the advice. Kiss the son, bow down and kiss the son, kiss his feet, lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Blessed are all who take refuge in the Son. And that's what we see right here. Who do you say that I am? Peter says, you are the Christ. You're the Son of the living God. He's bowing down and kissing the feet of the Son. And what does Jesus say? Blessed are you. Psalm 2, blessed are those that take their refuge in him. Matthew 16, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. It's a beautiful Christian confession. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Brothers and sisters, this is the most important question that could ever run across your your mind. Who do you say that he is? It is the most important question. And not just brothers and sisters. If you're lost here today, it's the most important question that could ever enter into your mind. Who do you say Jesus is? Who is he? Who do you think he is? If you shrug off this question, it will lead to condemnation. If you answer this question wrongly, who do you say that he is? And you have a wrong answer like that popular opinion. It will lead to condemnation. But if you have a right Christology mixed with real and true faith, it leads to eternal life. So if you're a non-Christian here today, I want to encourage you to ask yourself that. Let that question land on your heart. If you're not in Christ, listen, who do you say Christ is? Your eternity is at stake. Your salvation is at stake. If you reject him, you die in your sins forever, you go to hell. And, and not because he's mean, but because you earned it with your sin. But if you, like Peter, you're the Christ, you're the son of the living God. And you confess him with true faith. Listen, Jesus died for sinners like you. He died for your sin. He took your punishment so that you don't have to risen from the dead. And right now he's Lord and Savior and you will be saved. If you're here today and you are a Christian already, listen, you're a Christian already. This is the most important question for you. Who do you say that he is? Because not only does this this affect your salvation, it affects your sanctification, right? You remember that in 2 Corinthians 3.18? It says, we all with unveiled face, 
beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, as we are beholding the glory of Jesus through his word, we're being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to the next. How do you get sanctification? How do you become more like Christ? You need a a deeper and deeper and more glorious and more worshipful Christology. You need to see him for who he is. It's the most important question you can ask. Who do you say that Christ is? And I'll just mention this because I thought about this a lot. Every child of a believer in this room, who do you say that he is? Who do you say that he is? Because he can't just be your parent's Savior. He can't just be your parent's Lord. You need to trust him with all your heart. It needs to come flowing out of your heart. You are the Christ. You're the Son of the living God. You're my Savior. You're my Lord. Who do you say that he is? Now the second half of this passage, verse 17 through 20, We get Jesus' response. So this Christian confession was just laid out. Now verse 17, 18, 19, 20, we get Jesus' response. And we see a beautiful ecclesiology here. An understanding of the church. Now just for the sake of plain sense, let me just try to uh, lay out some categories and then we'll go in more detail, okay? So if you're going to break this down, Jesus' response in verse 17 through 20, you can break it down into four parts. And it just goes with each verse, 17, 18, 19, 20, okay? And number one, you've got um, the affirmation of Peter's confession. So, Peter, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Verse 17, number one, Jesus says, blessed are you. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. This flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you. My Father in heaven reveals this to you. An affirmation, yes. Affirmation of that confession of faith. Okay? Second, you see a beautiful promise about the church. That's in verse 18. He says, he says and you are Peter, and, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Beautiful promise. I'll build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And then number three, you see Jesus delegating authority out in verse 19. He uses some metaphorical language to do it. He says, and to you is given the keys the keys of the kingdom of heaven, whatever you bind on earth be bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth be loose in heaven. I'm giving you the keys of the kingdom. This is delegation of the, the King Jesus is delegating his authority out to an earthly source here. And we'll come back to that. And then lastly, number four, and almost surprisingly, we got, shh, don't tell nobody. You see that in verse 20? Don't tell anyone. And what I want us to do is I want us to dig into those first three. And that last piece where he told them, don't tell anybody yet that I'm the Christ. um, We're going to come back, God willing, to that next week because it's very connected to the next passage. Okay, so I want us to dig into these first three, verse 17, 18 and 19. Verse 17, let's dig in a little deeper. An affirmation of Peter's confession. Look at it. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. This is so interesting and so good. That to, to, to trust in Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God, it turns cursed people into blessed people. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. It 
to trust in Christ as trust in Jesus as Christ as only God, it turns cursed people into blessed people. Now, a really good verse for this is Galatians 3, verse 10 and verse 13. I used to call that my elevator gospel. It's a little short gospel verse where if you're in the elevator, it's all the time you got. It's what you can share real quick. And Galatians 3, 10, it says, Everyone who is under the law is under the curse of the law because cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things in the book of the law to do it. You haven't obeyed God. You are cursed. You're born cursed and you prove it with your disobedience. Cursed, cursed, cursed. But then verse 13 says, but he has redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. As it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Jesus became your curse at the cross. So, that you, so he became a curse for you. So that you can be the blessed ones, not the cursed ones. And we see this here. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Oh, blessed are you. Blessed are you. Now, how, how, did, um, how did Peter attain this knowledge? Man, he's so smart, right? How did he attain this knowledge of you are the Christ, the son of the living God? How did he, how did he get this, this insight? And what you see, Jesus doesn't give him any credit here. Jesus doesn't allow him to pat himself on the back even for a moment. Right after he says it, he says, flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you. No, you didn't get that yourself. And that, that, that wasn't given to you because of somebody else, some other human, some other man. Flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, Peter. But my Father in heaven revealed this to you. No patting yourself on the back. My Father in heaven revealed this to you. Now this is true for every single believer in the room. Amen? So many of you around this room, from your heart, and it's shown by your life, you have confessed Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and He saved your soul. And guess what you can't say? I figured it out! Come here, I'll help you figure it out too. No, you say, man, flesh and blood. This is not a safe, this is not flesh and blood, glory to my flesh. This is the Father in heaven revealed this to me. You understand that? Like, you can't be saved. You know this. You can't be saved by your works. You can work and work and work and try to earn it and arrogantly think that you're going to stand before God one day and He's going to be, man, look how good you are. Come on into heaven. You can't do that. And it's so bad that even your acknowledgement that he is the Christ, your understanding that he's the son of the living God, even that can't be accredited to you. That's from the Father in heaven. Remember Acts 16, that's what Lydia did, right? Lydia was saved. She believed in the Lord Jesus. And, and it says what happened there was God opened her heart that she might receive the things preached to her by Paul. God opened her heart. No, no patting ourselves on the back. And so what we have here, we have a Christian confession given. And that's the way the scripture talks about these things. Like Romans 10, 9. Whoever confesses with his mouth the Lord Jesus, believes in his heart, God raised him from the dead, he will be saved. Or, or you know, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy talks about the, the good confession. And that's what Peter gives her. He gives a good confession. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus affirms that true Christian confession in verse 17. Now, he goes straight from there, verse 18, to this beautiful promise about building the church. 
Let's read it again. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, Jesus uses sort of a play on words here. Coming from the nickname that he gave to Simon. Peter. It means rock. Peter means rock or it means a, a stone. And Jesus kind of uses a play on words here. You're Peter. This, this nickname he gave him that means rock, that means, that means stone. You're, you're Peter, he says. And, he, and what we see here is Jesus is going to build something. Jesus is going to build. What's he going to? Jesus is going to build his church. He's going to build his church on rock or stone. And somehow that's associated with Peter. The rock, the stone. I want you to think of it like this. Who is the builder of the church? Jesus is, right? And what's he building the church with? True confessors like Peter. See, I want you to understand this. This is not about Peter in and of himself. Like Peter for Peter's sake, just, just for, for who he is, you are this person. No, this is, it has a context, right? Peter just said something. You're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. And Peter as a confessor, the first true Christian confessor, he says, that right there, I'm going to build my church on true confessors like that. Now, that's the way Peter would go and understand it later. Listen to this verse. This is from 1 Peter chapter 2. And Peter says this. You yourselves, he's looking at the church, 1 Peter 2 verse 5. You yourselves, like living stones, like rocks, like living stones. Stones, rocks, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifice acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. He understands the building of this church through these living stones. And Jesus looks at Peter as one of these living stones. I'm going to build my church on confessors, true confessors like that. Now the promise here, please don't miss the beauty of it. I will build my church. That's beautiful. The church, his ecclesia, this Greek word was used in the Greek Old Testament as uh, the congregation of Israel, the assembly of Israel. Jesus says, I'm going to build my assembly. I'm going to build my congregation, my called out ones. These are, these are my people. I'm going to build my church. And he will do it. It's a promise right here. Now, why this, why this transition from a true Christian confession, you're the Christ, Son of the living God, affirm, that's from my Father in heaven. Why the jump from there to I will build the church? Because he's going to build his church off these confessors. You see the connection there? I will build my church. The church, listen to me, it will be built by Jesus. You want to spend your life on something that's not a waste? Come alongside him and build the church. Because it's going to get done with or without you. Don't waste your life. Spend it on stuff that's, that's promised to come. Are you sure, Jesus? Are you, are you sure? Because there's a lot that's going to come against it. You know, all kind of uh, uh, adversaries and problems. And, and, you know, you're building it with some pretty jacked up people. Are you sure? He says, listen. 
The gates of hell will not prevail against this thing. Now that phrase, gates of hell, has been thought about many different ways. But the clearest thing we can see is it was a Jewish idiom for the powers of death. A lot of translations say the gates of Hades. The gates of Hades, the, even the power of death. Our mightiest foe, we think about death as this mighty foe with massive gates, massive walls. Nobody comes out of death. And he said even the gates of death, even the mightiest foe, will not stop Christ or his church. He will build it. It's similar to saying, oh death, where is your sting? Oh, oh death, oh grave, where's your victory? 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This is about the unstoppable building of the church. No one can stop the Christ. Now, verse 19. In verse 19, we see a delegation of the king's authority. And what I mean by that is King Jesus is going to delegate his authority. He is authoritative king. He's going to delegate that authority out to an earthly source or out to, to another. Look at it in verse 19. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now we need to understand this. Two metaphors are given here. Two metaphors. The keys of the kingdom. Keys of the kingdom. And a metaphor of binding and loosing. Okay? Tied up, untied. or Held here, let go. Um, keys of the kingdom, number one. Number two, binding and loosing. And they're connected. It's the keys of the kingdom that do this binding and loosing. I give you the keys of the kingdom. Whatever you bind on earth, be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth, be loose in heaven. These are connected. Keys of the kingdom for binding and loosing. Keys of a kingdom. Keys unlock a door. So it's the idea of inclusion into the kingdom or exclusion from the kingdom. Binding and loosing. It's a metaphorical language here. Now, what I want us to do is I want us to get into the details of what these metaphors mean. But before we do that, I don't want you to miss the, the, the overarching thing that's being communicated here. Okay, there's, there's a big picture thing being communicated when he says, I'm giving you the keys of the kingdom. And I want you to understand what's being communicated. This is Jesus, the king, delegating his authority to a human or to humans, as we'll see in a minute. Think about that. Peter says, you are the Christ. That's the confession. You're the Christ. You're the king. And that king has a kingdom. Peter, here's the keys. You catching that authority? You're the Christ. You're the king. The king has a kingdom. I give you the keys of that kingdom. It's authority being delegated to another. Now that metaphor is used in other places in scripture and over and over again. That's what we see. We see this metaphor of the keys being a symbol of authority. Now let me give you one example of that because it's not enough for me to say it. You should always test what I say, right? As an older man I love used to say, I might be a smooth talker. You better check it in the scriptures. Isaiah 22 verse 20. <clears throat> it says this. In that day, listen to it. In that day, 
I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hekiah. And what's he going to do with Eliakim? I will clothe him with your robe. And I will bind your sash on him. And will commit your authority to his hand. I will commit your authority, authority to his hand. He's talking to a king. I'm going to commit your authority to his hand. And he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. And I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. The key of the kingdom. The key of the house of David. So what does this metaphor the keys point to? This, this, this a symbol of authority. I'm giving this authority to another. So I want you to think about that. You are the Christ. You're the king. The king has a kingdom. I'm, he's going to delegate. It's a delegation of that authority. He's not, he's not giving it up. It's not like an irresponsible king that's just, I don't want the authority. You take it. No, no. It's You're going to stand and represent me on earth. The king of heaven will be represented on earth through this delegated authority. Those that will exercise the authority that he, that he has. Now, the passage tells us, and this is just to remind us of how, how big of a deal this is, that this authority being passed to, to a human or to humans, it's backed by heaven. It's a real authority being backed by heaven. How do you know that? Well, because it says, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now, no way does that mean that the, the representative authority on earth makes a decision and now, you know, the king is bound to do what they said, even if he disagrees. Okay, he didn't, he, didn't, he didn't give up authority, right? He's delegating it out. He still is the builder of the church, the advancer of the kingdom, but he's given the keys to another. The, the idea here, instead of that, Is that the king is saying, I'm delegating my authority to you that is backed by me. You're going to speak and decide in such a way that my authority is behind you. You understand that difference? Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loose in heaven. My, the authority you're exercising is backed by me, the king. Now. We're going to get in more details in just a minute. But I want you to try to imagine for just a moment uh, Peter's, try to put yourself in Peter's shoes, okay? Try to imagine the, the various emotions coming out of him as he makes his way through Jesus' response, right? So Jesus is responding to him. And just try to think about the emotions coming out of this man. So, so think about in verse 17, blessed are you, Simon. Flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you. My father in heaven, he affirms his confession. And what's the emotions flowing out of Peter? He's, you know, he's happy. He's ecstatic. He's encouraged. He just affirmed that. I, I, yes, right. The father in heaven, he's happy. He's joyful, right? Verse 18. And you're Peter. And, and on this rock, I'm going to build my church. And the gates of hell won't prevail against it. This promise is there. And what's he feeling? He's feeling emboldened amazed man he's gonna build his church he's just and he's emboldened to come along this is his messiah think about what he's feeling and then you get to verse 19 and i give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and what 
I'm passing this authority to you. And, and what do you probably have there? Shocked, tremble, trembling, maybe confused. Just try to feel the weight of that. Uh, this incredible responsibility just laid on him. This incredible authority and responsibility just laid on him. And what does he feel in that moment? Does he tremble before it? Did he just, that's, I just said, I just said you were the king, and you gave me the keys to the kingdom. Just awestruck. And I want you to feel the weight of responsibility he must have felt in that very moment. Now, hear me out on this, okay? This is where it gets practical for you and me. Every Christian who is a member of a local church ought to feel that same weight of responsibility because the keys of the kingdom, this authority has been passed to the local church. In other words, you should go through the same progression of emotions. It should be, you know, at some moment in your life, you gave the good confession in your soul. You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And, and the affirmation was, yes and amen, my Father revealed that to you. Joy, unspeakable. And you heard this promise, I'm going to build my church. And your heart's full of this emboldened emotion. And then you hear, and the keys of the kingdom are given to you. This authority is passed to you. As a member of a local church, and there ought to be weight of responsibility. Weight, a weight of responsibility. Now, let me try to let me just try to explain that because I can't just tell you that. You need to have it proven to you. Who holds the keys of the kingdom right now? Who holds the keys of the kingdom right now? In other words. Who does this authority and this responsibility fall to today? Does it remain with Peter? No, Peter's dead. That was easy. Right? So it doesn't remain with Peter. Plus, you can read the, the text and, and, and the context around it, and, and it never seems to show that Peter would hold this authority on his own, right? Peter was speaking as a represent, representative of the whole group. We saw that. Peter's highlighted as the first confessor, but more will come. Peter's literally rebuked in the following passage, and the rest of the New Testament does not show Peter as the sole uh, holder of the keys. It doesn't show him that way. He talks about, he even talks about himself in 1 Peter 5 as a fellow elder. A fellow elder. Okay, so this, this, uh, these keys of the kingdom. That it has this authority delegated from the king to him. Is it given to some Peter-like figure? It's kind of like the Catholic Pope kind of thing. Like from the line of, of Peter. You have this succession of these, these uh, popes. Is that, guys, as nice as I can say it, it's just nowhere in the Bible. I mean, I don't feel like I need to prove it. Like it's just not in there. So... Is it given to every, now this is a little tricky. Are the keys of the kingdom given to every individual Christian? Do you, as an individual Christian, and me as an individual Christian, do we hold the keys of the kingdom to bind and loose? Again, no, nowhere in the scriptures do we see it that way. 
Nowhere in the scriptures do we see it that way. So what does the scripture teach? Who holds the keys today? And we see this authority of the keys delegated to local churches, to the local church. Now, I'll try to mention three things quickly that back that up, that the keys of the kingdom are given to the local church. Number one, think about Jesus' jump. His jump from Peter's confession to his promise to build the church to the giving of this authority. Think about that little jump right there, okay? The authority of the keys is mentioned in the context of Jesus promising to build his church. You're the Christ, Son of the living God. Amen, true confession. I'm going to build my church. I'm going to give the keys of the kingdom. So that's hint number one. The church holds the keys of the kingdom. Hint number two is super clear. Really clear. The next time we see the keys of the kingdom mentioned in the Gospel of Matthew and the ecclesia, the church mentioned in the Gospel of Matthew, are in Matthew 18. You could go back and read that later, Matthew 18, verse 15 through 20. And we see the keys of the kingdom, not because it says that exact phrase, but it says the exact phrase of what the keys do, the binding and the loosing. So binding and loosing, Matthew 18, he's talking about the keys of the kingdom. Well, who has them? Well, he mentions the church there in Matthew 18. Think about it like this. You read through Matthew 18, that passage, 15 through 20, and that's that passage where it says, if your brother stands, go tell him. If he hears you, you want him. If he doesn't, take two or three more. If he doesn't hear the two or three more, tell it to the church, Ecclesia. If he doesn't hear the church, the church is called to remove this person, excommunicate them, uh, take them out of the covenant, uh, outside the covenant community. That's what the church is called to do. Next verse says, for whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loose in heaven. Who's doing the binding loosing there? The church. In fact, it's even, the you is even plural. Whatever, in, in Matthew 18, whatever y'all bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever y'all loose on earth will be loose in heaven. So it's given to the church. Third, I would just argue that the rest of the New Testament gives evidence to the local church possessing the authority to bind and loose with the authority of the keys. In other words, as you, as you read through your New Testament, just read through it and think through that topic, who do you see exercising the, this authority of the key? Who do you see having this kind of authority? Is it just one individual? Is it just the individual Christian? Is it, a, is it a pope? Like, what is it? And what you see over and over again, just an example would be 1 Corinthians 5. Who has the authority to do Matthew 18, to excommunicate, to remove someone? Well, Matthew 18 said the church did. In 1 Corinthians 5, the apostle couldn't do it by himself. The pastors couldn't do it by themselves. It says, when you are gathered together, the whole church gathered together in one place, excommunicate this person. The authority can only be exercised there. Anyways, I want to convince you of that because I think it's true. Who holds the keys of the kingdom today? And I believe it is the local church. So that, if you're putting yourself in Peter's shoes and you're feeling that weight, the joy and then the weight of responsibility, that the king who has a kingdom passes the keys of the kingdom, this authority to you, 
And you feel that weight for Peter? Then if you're in a church, if you're a part of a local church, you ought to feel that together with your brothers and sisters. This weight of responsibility you have. Along with your fellow members, you carry the keys of the kingdom, which is an authority backed by heaven. And I want to exhort everybody here, a part of a local church, to strive to do that well. To strive to do that well. The modern church has, has lost sight of this. Today, the church, the local church is seen as just some event. It's just an event that happens. Everybody get ready for the event. Enjoy the event. Do you like the event? I like the event. Not this group of people locked arms together to exercise the authority of the keys, this responsibility given to them. And we'll pretty much know this, okay? Generally speaking, this authority is an authority. So again, we're getting into what it is now. What is this keys of the kingdom to bind and What is this authority given to Peter and then now to the church? What is this authority? This is what we're getting into. It's an authority that's connected to people entering the kingdom or being excluded from the kingdom. Right? Isn't that what keys do? Think about what keys of a kingdom would do. They would allow entrance. Keys allow entrance. Or keys exclude. Allow entrance into the kingdom or exclude from the kingdom. Now that's weighty stuff, right? That's really weighty stuff. Now what it doesn't mean and it can't mean. Is that the church or any individual has some sort of authority to save somebody or make them a citizen of the kingdom? The scripture gives that to Christ and Christ alone. Only he can save someone. Only he can make someone a citizen of the kingdom. But it's connected to that entrance in the kingdom and exclusion from the kingdom. These are keys. So how then does the church exercise this authority and responsibility Connected to inclusion into the kingdom and exclusion from the kingdom. And I'm going to give you three ways. Probably more to be said, but I'll give you three ways. Okay? Jot these down and please think deeply about them later. Number one, through the proclamation and protection of the truth. Especially the truth of the gospel. Through proclamation and protection of the truth. Now think about that. The proclamation of the truth of the gospel is like a key unlocking a door that you can come into the kingdom. The gospel must be proclaimed for a soul to be saved. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. Right? Now, every Christian individually ought to be a truth proclaimer. Okay, that's not just given to the church corporate. Every Christian, every individual Christian should be a, be a true proclaimer, man, making Christ known into this dark world. Every one of us. But the local church has a special role to play in the proclamation and protection of that truth. Think about 1 Timothy 3.15. The church is called, what? The pillar and the ground of the truth. What is the church? It's the pillar of the truth. We hold the truth high for all to see. It's the ground of the truth. We hold it firm and movable. Hold the truth high. Get it out. Hold the truth firm. Protect it. Hold it. And this is the role. If the church misses this, 
They become a part of, of anti-truth being spread, lies being spread, lies about Jesus that lock people out of the kingdom of heaven rather than allowing them in. So, think about this. As a Christian submits himself to a local church that has God-given authority, and, and Christians ought to do that, he should ask himself a few questions, and this is a really, really important one. What doctrine am I submitting myself to? Are these people holding the truth high? Is this church holding the truth high and holding it firm? What doctrine am I submitting myself to as I come into this local church? It's an important question. And a part of submitting yourself under the authority of a local church is submitting yourself to the teaching of that church. To be there and nourished week in and week out. To be nourished by the preaching of the Word of God. It's a part of what it means to submit to a local church. And as a member, if you're a member of Grace Community Church, hear me out. How, so members of Grace Community Church, how your church is holding to the truth and proclaiming the truth should matter to you deeply. This is the whole congregation's responsibility to how the truth is being held. It's not just pastor's job, it's the whole congregation's responsibility. Church members are not supposed to be passive as it relates to the doctrine of the church. Think about this. Who has the authority to change the doctrinal statement at Grace Community Church? Can, can myself and Dustin and Greg, pastors of this church, can we just show up one day and say, hey, y'all, we'll change something there? No, I can't do that. We don't have the authority to do that. That's the church. We should lead in that. But as a whole, as a church, you have to come to that decision. Or say it another way. Pastors are supposed to be uh, lead truth protectors. Hey, we're all truth protectors, but pastors are supposed to be lead truth protectors in the church. Who, who has the authority to bring another pastor into this church? Can the pastors of Grace Community Church just show up one day and say, hey, y'all, we got another pastor. Just let y'all know. And it's just, no, we don't have the authority to, to do that. It's, we should lead in that. But as a whole, as a church, there's this, there's this holding the keys of the kingdom together to protect and proclaim the truth, which affects who you bring on as a pastor to the church. What kind of men will be lead Truth protectors. What kind of men will be pastors of Grace Community Church 30 years from now? That's a responsibility every member of this church should feel the weight of. Because you hold the keys of the kingdom. Understand? Okay, second. Second. Church membership and church discipline. So again, we're, answering, we're asking the question, how does a church faithfully hold the keys of the kingdom? I mentioned... Proclamation, protection of the truth. Number two, church membership and church discipline. And what I mean by that church membership, this formal bringing someone into the membership of a local church. They're clearly a part of this church or a church. And life of the, in the life of that, um, of living out church membership in between. And then church discipline, when uh, unrepentant sin bring, uh, shows itself in such a way that someone needs to be excluded from the church. They need to be removed. Matthew 18. <coughs> First uh, Corinthians 5, they need to be excommunicated from the church. Membership and church discipline. It's an important way, a major way, 
If the church holds faithfully the keys of the kingdom. Now, that's seen really, really clearly in Matthew 18, as I said a moment ago. I give you the keys of the kingdom to bind and loose. What is binding and loosing? Go read Matthew 18. If he sins, tell him. If he doesn't hear you, take two or three more. If he doesn't hear them, tell it to the church. If he won't hear the church, he's an unrepentant one. Showing himself to not be living as a real citizen of the kingdom. So remove him. Excommunicate him. Discipline him out of the church. For whatever you bound on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loose in heaven. This is removal of someone from membership. Saying we can no longer confirm you as a citizen of the kingdom of Christ. Or bringing somebody into church membership. We affirmed you as a citizen of the kingdom of Christ. You see that? Think about what we have in Matthew 16 and Matthew 18. Matthew 16, we have an affirmation of a Christian confession by Jesus. Yes, that's from my Father in heaven. In Matthew 18, we have a, 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 a disaffirmation, a, a disaffirmation of a Christian confession of we can no longer confirm your confession and remove them from the church. This is membership and church discipline. Now, here's what's clear from these passages. And other passages in the Bible. The local church is supposed to be in the business of marking off citizens of the kingdom of light from those of the kingdom of darkness. Local churches are supposed to be in the business of marking off the people of God from the world. That's the duty of exercising the key. That's a part of that authority that we're supposed to wield together. As faithfully holding the keys. So, as a Christian considers submitting himself to a local church with God-given authority, and, and, and Christians ought to do that, he should first ask himself some questions like this. How seriously, how serious do they take membership in the church? Does it mean something to them, or is it just a name on a list? Do they practice church discipline? Listen, you don't have to go back very far in time to see writers writing in such a way that if a church didn't practice church discipline, there were no church at all. Do they practice this? It's really clearly in the scriptures. Do they, do they clearly see, does this church clearly understand true and false conversion? Because, man, they need to understand biblical conversion if they're going to um, affirm Christian confession on the way in and Disaffirm them if someone is excommunicated. So, submit yourself to a local church that does these things faithfully. Now, as a member of a church, so members of Grace Community Church, hear me out for a minute. Brothers and sisters, these things ought to really matter to you. Think about, again, that weight of responsibility you might have felt for poor old Peter, and you went, oh man, it's on us, right? Man, this, this stuff should matter to you. Who, who has the authority to... Can, we cannot, pastors of Grace Community Church cannot, by Jesus' design, show up and say, hey, we, we added another member to the church. No, you have to do that. You exercise the keys of the kingdom to bring someone in and affirm that confession like Jesus. Keys are given to us together. Who has the authority to excommunicate? We can't show, pastors of this church don't show up and say, hey, we excommunicated someone. No, that's the church. You ought to feel that responsibility. We hold the keys of the kingdom together as a local church. First Corinthians 5 says it has to be done when the church comes together in one place. Why? Because they had the authority to do it. 
The membership of your local church must be a significant part of your life. These are the people that you hold the keys of the kingdom with, and that heightens your responsibility for these people. And I encourage you to feel the glorious weight of that and ask God to help you to live it out faithfully. Last thing I'll mention. We're talking about, again, answering the question, how does the church exercise this authority that's given by Jesus? And number three, I'd mention baptism and the Lord's Supper. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. These are two ordinances given to the church by King Jesus. And one of their functions, baptism and the Lord's Supper, is to mark off citizens of the kingdom from the world. That's one of the functions. Baptism and the Lord's Supper is to mark off citizens of the kingdom from the world. Think about that. How, um, how will we exercise the kings of God? How will we mark off citizens of the kingdom from the world? And you get to Matthew 26 and we're given the Lord's Supper and told to do this regularly. And someone not in Christ ought not to be doing it, but doing this regularly. This, this, this ongoing sign that we are the people of God, the Lord's Supper, right? You get to Matthew 28, a little later, and you've got baptism. Go and make disciples. Think about it, Matthew 28, verse 19 and 20. Go make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them. Marking them all through baptism. Marking them all through the Lord's Supper. As this is, these are the people of God. Baptism is that initial sign that marks them off. And the Lord's Supper is the ongoing sign that marks people off from the world. And think about how obvious that is in the scripture. Baptism. <coughs> never, you, who has the authority to baptize? Not the individual Christian. Nowhere in the Bible does it say, you believe in Christ, now go baptize yourself. It never says that. It's be baptized. Who are you baptized by? Who holds the keys of the kingdom? It's the church that baptizes. Think about the Lord's Supper. That's never an individual thing that happens in a living room somewhere with just a family by themselves or, or happens in a wedding. It's, it's not something like that. 1 Corinthians 11 through 14 talks about the Lord's Supper. And seven times you hear this phrase, when you all come together. When you all come together. When, all, when the whole church comes together is one of the phrases. When you all come together to the church, it's a church function. And they have the authority to distribute that out. It's marking off the people of God from the world through the initial sign of baptism and that ongoing sign of the Lord's Supper. So as a Christian submits himself to a local church with God-given authority, and Christians ought to do that, this kind of stuff should really matter to them. Are these ordinances being practiced faithfully as King Jesus ordained it to be so? And part of that submission to the church is to, to be there, man. They're breaking bread and to be there when they break bread together. And this is what the Lord called us to do, not to forsake this assembling of the saints. It's a beautiful lesson that the Lord wants us to live our lives together Exercising these keys of the kingdom, this, this delegated authority together with this view and constant reminder that Christ Jesus was crucified. Christ Jesus died for sinners. His body was broken. His blood was shed. Constant reminder of it. So baptism in the Lord's Supper is a way that we as a church hold these keys faithfully.
Now, in closing, I just want to go back to where we started, okay? Um, what do we see at the peak, the climax of this Gospel of Matthew? What do we see here? We see beautiful Christology and beautiful ecclesiology. We see stuff about Jesus and his church, right? Beautiful stuff about Jesus and his church. And I pray that this affects your lives. I pray that, that it affects each and every person here. That you would be a Christ person. That you would be a, a church person. Absolutely obsessed with more and more knowledge of Christ. And more and more uh, uh, faithfulness and building up the church. I pray these verses would help you with that. And you would strive to be a Christ exalter and a church edifier. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for letting us study and meditate on your word together. And Lord, I pray that you would help by your spirit, Lord, to apply these things to our hearts. That you would help us, God, to, to sit under these truths, Lord. God, I pray that you would deepen our view of Christ. We want to know you, Lord. We want to know you more and more and more in your glory and your majesty, Lord. Help us, please. And Lord, I pray that all across this room, you would make us church people, Lord, that love and build up your church. Help us to do it standing on this promise, Lord. You said you would build it. God, help us to, help us to hold these keys of the kingdom faithfully. We love you, Lord, and commit this to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together.